What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today we are pleased and indeed honored to have with us Sir Lawrence Friedman. Sir Lawrence is one of the leading historians dealing with the history of war. He is the author of numerous acclaimed books and is Professor Emeritus of War Studies at King's College London. And today we're discussing his latest book, Command. The Politics and Military Operations from Korea to Ukraine, published by Oxford University Press. Welcome, Sir Lawrence. Good to be with you. Sir Lawrence, uh, what is the thesis of your book? Um, well, it, it has a couple of purposes, uh, and maybe one thesis. Um, so one of the purposes was to have a means of looking at conflicts post-1945, and then an awful lot of military history concentrates on the First and Second World Wars, but I wanted to explore more the military history of the uh, post-war period. Secondly, the issue of command is one that me for, for a long time, um, following from my past history strategy, uh, command is the point where the strategy has to be implemented where choices have to be made and orders given. And then the thesis, I think, is a, it's a challenge to the idea that there are separate civilian and military domains uh, in warfare, so that the politicians are the ones who uh, decide on the objectives, and then we must leave it to the military uh, to, work out, to meet the objectives in practice. Uh, I think... Uh, I think this is, comes over in the book. Um, the setting of objectives has to be done with military advice and make sure that that plausible. Equally, that when a war is being fought, you can't really expect the politicians to stay completely out of it because uh, they're the ones who have to deal with the consequences if things go wrong. So, uh, it, it, a lot of this is about civil military relations uh, and how they work in practice rather than in some idealized way. What do you mean exactly by the term command as employed in the book? Um, in order, um, the, the, the thing about command is not a request uh, or a suggestion. Uh, it has a lot of authority 
behind it comes from the same word as mandate, uh, the same etymology as mandate, so that the the advantage of command uh, is that people should uh, should jump and do do as they're told. That's what that's what the idea conveys, and that if they don't, then they're challenging not only uh, the specifics of the order, but, but the authority structure behind them. So, so there's there's something quite special about being in the position to command, and I think it goes a bit beyond that because normally we use the word not solely, but to discuss military matters, where in a sense you have to command people to do things that are in a way a natural, both in terms of being prepared to kill and being put in a position where you might get killed. So, uh, and that's what needs needs the, the special authority and urgency that the, the, the term suggests. How does command and how sorry? How does command operate indeed differ, if at all, in democratic states as opposed to non-democratic states? Well, I think the, the, there's uh, an important difference which stems from this point about authority structures. If you're um, an autocratic state, authoritarian state, you expect uh, your your orders to be obeyed pretty automatically, and you see dissent as a big danger. If, if there's a way in which people are challenging your your orders on a regular basis, that can seem to be very threatening. So the whole point about this sort of um, Regime is is that it depends on um, uh, it depends on laws being uh, obeyed without question. But in democratic countries, they also require military orders to be obeyed uh, and get concerned when they're not. But at the same time, we accept that, that, that there may be room for conversation, divisions. We accept that, that the politics of all of our societies are more pluralistic, sometimes quite divided, and that will be reflected in, in the way that military operations play out. So one of the big differences in practice is that uh, when you get right to the top, because the book doesn't just look at uh, in terms of the general's command, it looks at the political leader's command as well. A political leader who is thinking all the time about their position and doesn't want to be challenged, they end up making some pretty terrible decisions. Uh, because there's nobody in the position to say that's not a very good idea. We thought about this and that to to provide the challenge. Whereas in democratic countries, you at least hope that there's a possibility of, of the challenges being made. Uh, we can all think of instances where there might have been more challenge, but nonetheless, it uh, it, it doesn't mean that there are opportunities to to question what what leaders are doing. Some would say that the advantage of authoritarian leaders is that they can take bolder decisions because they can be less transparent, and, and that may be true, but bolder decisions aren't necessarily always the good ones. How did General MacArthur's personality make his class with clash with President Truman much more likely? Oh, I think the task of... Uh, was what you'd call a prima donna. He he was uh, uh, he, he he felt himself to be an unassailable position. He he wasn't just a, a general. He was uh, high profile 
political figure who actually had hardly been in the United States for eight, but had um, spent his time fighting uh, the Pacific War, mainly uh, from Australia, and then uh, had been uh, put in charge of Japan, and I, I was then fighting the Korean War. So he just uh, felt himself to be unassailable, very arrogant, uh, pretty contemptuous of all politicians, uh, and not very interested in the, in, in the generality of the challenges facing uh, American foreign policy uh, at the start of uh, the 1950s, when, when the clash came. He, uh, he didn't really, and in Truman seemed to him a rather nondescript person, the, the uh, was a temporary occupant of, of, of the White House, but I think he saw his own role in rather grander terms. Why exactly did President Truman dismiss MacArthur, and why were he and the Joint Chiefs of Staff so reluctant to do so? Well, I mean, the, the problem was, well, two, two, two features of MacArthur. First, he uh, uh, he was a high-profile political figure with a lot of support in the Republican Party. So it was clear that any time you, you challenged him, there was going to be some sort of political reaction. But second, he'd been pretty successful. I mean, as far as uh, everyone was concerned, if you go to about October 1950, um, he, he first felt stabilised the position in the uh, in the Korean War, and then with the Incheon landings, um, has uh, transformed the situation so that the North Koreans were the ones on the defensive. Uh, and he had the opportunity to um, to push uh, to the point where North Korea may cease to exist as a, an independent entity. The problem was he pushed too far, so that uh, and, the, and the Joint Chiefs had worried um, uh, that he that he was uh, that he was being disobeying the order that had been given him, which was to. Uh, avoid going to the Yalu River, dividing Korea from from China. So this brought China in in a catastrophic way for American forces. So I think the um, uh, the particular issue which led to his dismissal dismissal was not actually that he he failed uh, at this critical test as a general, but was that he kept on giving speeches. Uh, which dissented from American foreign policy, from the, from the Truman administration's foreign policy. Uh, and although I think Truman was, saw himself as sacking McCartney just simply because of insubordination, the actual language used um, was, was that he had to leave because he didn't share the, the foreign policy framework of the administration. Uh, basically, he was prepared for a war with China, which the a wider war with China, um, which the administration didn't want. Why did the French CNC in Indochina General Navarre make Dien Bien Phu such an important battle? Why was he Why was he so reluctant to withdraw from such an exposed position once the Viet Minh's capability to bring up heavy artillery was confirmed? Well, it's a complex story. Uh, I mean, Navarre, um, the first problem Navarre had was though that he was a decorated and charismatic, uh, very clever general, 
uh, he didn't know Indo China very much, so he, he always thought he was taking advice, and those who were taking advice from Dilatores impressed by him. And secondly, um, he was trying to work out a strategy for the French forces in, in Indochina at a time when um, the government were, were basically losing the will to carry on with the fight uh, and started to think about negotiations with the communists. And the communists understood that the logic of that was that they would need to um, uh, strengthen their position for any negotiations. But uh, I never quite picked it up. The, the, the decision to uh, make a fight of uh, at the MBNC sort of followed a previous uh, operation that had gone relatively well for the French, whereby they, they picked a spot that they could defend and supply. Um, and and then after they'd beaten the Viet, the Vietnamese back, the communist back, then they could withdraw from it quite easily. But there was a confusion about what they were trying to do at the MBN through. Were they uh, were they just trying to uh, make a point that they could assert their presence in this part of uh, Vietnam, or were they trying to find a way to mount offensive operations? So there was a, a confusion of roles, which, which didn't help. And then there was, uh, he suggests, uh, an underestimation of the opponent, and in particular their ability to bring artillery into position. But he, uh, I mean, that wasn't confirmed until the, the, the day the battle started, although it started to be suspected. And I think the main criticism of the bazaar would be that uh, he, he, could, he, he had a basis for withdrawing weeks before things got too difficult, or he had a basis for reinforcing, uh, which would um, possibly have allowed the French to hold the MBN food, but he did neither. So he, he sensed that the position was not very satisfactory um, and that there were vulnerabilities developing, but he didn't act on that. So then when the, when the battle began, it soon became apparent that the, the, the French uh, artillery position was not as superior as they'd hoped uh, and expected. Um, but it was it wasn't too late to bring in reserves. But then he got um, uh, too pessimistic about what could happen. So when there was a good chance to bring in reserves, he didn't. And then eventually, when there was no point in bringing in reserves, he did. Uh, which led to a whole lot of people being killed and captured unnecessarily. Were the French more successful militarily in Algeria than in Indochina? And if so, why? Um, they were militarily they were successful um, in, in, in in Algeria because it was easier battles for them to fight. It was catered to home. There was uh, more of a conviction that Algeria was not just a colony, but a real part of France. Um, and uh, the enemy uh, had overplayed their hand by uh, in the battle for Algeria, indulging in some pretty free terrorism, which 
created a situation in which the uh, government turned to the Paris to, um, uh, to, to deal with this challenge ruthlessly. It was the ruthlessness of their methods that are now most notorious, but they they did at the time work. They they um, uh, they crushed um, the military capability of, of um, the FLN, the, the, the opposition group that they forced the FLN to um, move outside of Algeria, Tunisia. But in a way, that was part of the problem because the, then the uh, their opponents started to mobilize politically, rely on more on demonstrations, international support, and so on. Um, and eventually, the Gaulle realized you know, the French position was untenable, that you just couldn't, by military units alone, hold on to uh, a place where, where the population, the bulk of the population, wanted you out, even though there were a million. Um, uh, of the settlers who uh, very much wanted to Algeria to stay part of France. So this was an enormous crisis in American French democracy um, leading to assassination uh, attempts and coups, attempted coups and, and so on. And it's a good demonstration of the point that a military victory by itself is rarely sufficient. You need a political victory to go with it and that's so that more or less is the reason why General de Gaulle decided to abandon Algeria Francais. He abandoned Algeria, yes. I mean, he got the power because of Algeria Francais, but he never quite endorsed it. Um, and he, anything about de Gaulle was that he, he knew how to stay enigmatic at all times. Um, and, he, and when he realized that the French position just couldn't hold all the time. Um, he, he moved very swiftly to open up negotiations um, to, to give Algeria independence. And this, you know, that's what caused the fury amongst the, uh, the settler population, but not amongst the French people generally. How much uh, were the tensions behind the civilians and the military, as recounted from the example of the Cuban Missile Crisis, normal in a democratic state? I think they were quite normal. They were exaggerated to a degree because um, of, of the of tense relationships between uh, the, 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 the civilians in the Pentagon led by Robert McNamara and, uh, and the military who were uh, pretty contemptuous in your military, um, pretty generally hawkish, uh, but then in, not impressed either Kennedy or, McCarthy, uh, or, or, or McNamara with the advice that they'd been given. So the relations were pretty cool, and this was reflected in a number of exchanges uh, up to the announcement of the blockade and then the implementation of the blockade. All that being said, um, Admiral Allison, the chief of the naval operations, um, yeah, was in the end uh, followed uh, civilian control and advice. Uh, 
you just try to give his his commanders as much latitude as possible in meeting it. So though the episode showed all the tensions at work, in the end, the two, the civilians and the military behaved perfectly properly towards each other uh, when uh, actually implementing the the policy. So in point of fact, uh, notwithstanding these tensions, uh, the the fact of the matter was that they, they did not per se negatively impact either operations or policy in the crisis. No, I don't think they did. Uh, and uh, I mean, it, it, it could have been different in, in if if the conflict had developed in other ways. It was helped that it would resolve quite quickly. Um, but I think the general feature I just struck me very much in, in many of the case that examined in the book strong words said uh, because he, she's muttering who cares about the Johnson beat uh, seems to me to be seems surprised or disappointed uh, I think it's a sharp but it's complete the positive Happy to you do. Yes, please go ahead. Sorry, I don't think so. I get to see um, the people in the end, the, uh, if you look what they did during the year, it managed to blockade uh, as it had been asked to do with some sensitivity. Is it not, in a sense, true that Ariel Sharon was a sort of Israeli MacArthur with perhaps better political antenna? Yeah, he, he had some of the uh, arrogance and self-assuredness and uh, popular uh, appeal of, of, of a MacArthur. Um, and in the end, it was more successful politically because eventually he became um, not only minister uh, in, in successive governments, but eventually prime minister. So he had that success. But on the other hand, um, his political judgment uh, on, on the big issues was often um, wanting. He was a brilliant uh, tactical operational general. He had the loyalty of his men. He was very audacious, um, imaginative, um, and in the decisions he took, but he, he was chronically insubordinate, um, always challenging those above him, politically or militarily. Uh, and of course, in the 1973 war, you have this odd feature that he, he actually was called back to be a divisional commander after um, uh, as a reservist, uh, having just started a new political party uh, Likud in, in opposition to the to the Labour governing party, and th- this uh, hampered his relations all, all the way through the war. So it's a very particular case, Sharon. When eventually he he was able to design and lead a major operation himself, which is to be likened to um, invasion of um, of Lebanon, it was catastrophic. Uh, he he. he um, overestimated 
what the, the Christian Aaronites would do for um, for Israel. Um, didn't really understand the Lebanon as a country, um, and that led to a catastrophic result, which I think we're dealing with the consequences of that to this day. That's what led to the rise of Hezbollah, for example. So um, Sharon is, again, a good example of somebody who's militarily very astute, but, but politically, um, at least uh, in all of these matters, a very poor judgment. How would you characterize President Nixon's relations with the Pentagon, and how did it influence policy during North Vietnam's Easter Offensive of 1972? Well, Nixon relations along with everybody was characterized by suspicion and uh, and secrecy and um uh, uh and his own sort of difficulty in relating to to these people uh so he he didn't trust the Pentagon he thought it had um he didn't trust Melvin Laird, who was the secretary of defense uh and was always seeing thoughts and, uh, and insubordination. Uh, and that was also compounded by a real policy difference. So when the, um, when the uh, North Vietnamese mounted their invasion of South Vietnam, uh, his, his generals wanted to concentrate very much on using air power the available power to defeat the the invading forces to attack um, those that were coming out to uh, their defences, whereas Nixon wanted to use them to attack the um, uh, uh, Hanoi, eventually Haiphong, really the big North Vietnamese cities to coerce them, in fact, into into a peace deal. Um, to, to, to give the Paris peace talks some impetus, uh, which he did, uh, although the, the deal was didn't, uh, didn't accomplish all that he would have wished it to accomplish. So, what's interesting is, is that the personality factors, the political factors here, which in a way poison the relationships and lead to the suspicion. But behind it all, there was a very big strategic question, which is. Where do you, how do you use your air power to the greatest effectiveness um, when you're both trying to stop an army on the march uh, and trying to coerce um, the enemy's capital to change their policy? So, it, 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 the uh, and eventually, you know, the president he got his way. So you, you have the bombing of Hanoi and, and Haiphong, the mining of Haiphong, uh, as well. So it was, um, uh, and that was possible because actually by after a while there was enough air power around to, to, to meet both the immediate demands of stopping the invasion and the longer-term demands of coercive policies. Would it be true to say that in all the conflicts examined in the book that the Falklands War had the most harmonious civil-military interaction? Um, it was pretty. It was pretty harmonious. Um, it, 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 there were tensions in the command relationships, but these were largely um, 
at, at the front end in the in 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 the, in the South Atlantic. Uh, in London, you had a situation where the Prime Minister, though military experience, um, was quite alone in some ways. Um, didn't have sort of the large status of a mostly president has supporting him at all times, uh, uh, and was very reliant on military advice. I think got on very well with the senior military advisors, particularly Admiral Sir Terence Lewin, who was chief of defence staff, um, who had a good personal relationship with her, and, and she came to trust his judgment. He, he, you know, she was fortunately for her, fortunately, I guess for the UK, he, he had quite a, a shrewd sense of, of the politics of the situation as well as the uh, as the, as well as the military requirements. And because he was an admiral himself, he understood the naval operations that were going on. Whereas um, uh, uh, if it had been more of an army operation, he he, he might have ha had to defer to others more. So I, I think it, it, it was quite harmonious. Uh, it worked quite well, although there were uh, that meant that the relations between, if you like, London and the South Atlantic sometimes got a bit strained because um, they, in the South Atlantic itself, they didn't quite understand why you, sometimes why they were being asked to do what they were being asked to do. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Why was the Russian campaign in the first Chechen war so abysmal? And why was the campaign in the second war so much better, militarily speaking? Um, well, I mean, the, the, the Russian army in the mid-90s was just in a terrible state. Um, Russian society, economy, politics was uh, in, in a pretty dire position. There wasn't enough money around. Um, people were demoralized. The military were demoralized. They weren't being paid properly. The conscripts weren't healthy. And uh, again, you have the, the standard problem uh, underestimating the opponent in this case, were perfectly well prepared for, for the country when they came to them. So the thing got off to a bad start uh, from day one, and um, was never really seen to be worth the uh, the effort that had been. Uh, was the, there was going to defeating the, the, the Chechen nobles, and eventually, you even would have to argue that, that it was a victory for the rebels in Chechen. Putin's war, um, first war, had uh, had any features that, that didn't particularly reflect well uh, on the competence of, of the Russian army, but there were two aspects that were more effective. First, uh, the readiness was pretty brutal. 
um, then the battles for Grosny, the battle of Jackson, and secondly, a divided loop policy. So um, they found Gatchins that were able to work with with Russia, uh, as well as those who were who were adamant to be opposed. So it was by this time the Russians state was more together, it was more competent, um, but it was also more ruthless in some ways, um, and more astute in in, uh, in in making sure that it didn't face a united Chechen opposition. Is Putin's war in Ukraine merely another example of a military exercise similar to the first Chechen war? And why did the Russian military agree to such an abysmal operational plan in the first place? Well, it's a good question. Um, I think, again, you have the same problem of total underestimation of the opponent, and not just that they're not as uh, capable militarily uh, as the Russians, but also um, uh, the Ukraine was not even a proper state, that it, that it lacked the capacity um, to fight, the, the, the government was illegitimate, the, 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 there were inherent divisions between the West and the Eastern country, and so on. Um, so the, the whole operation, uh, now talking about the invasion of 2022, but it goes back to the first uh, attempts to destabilize Ukraine in well. The, the whole thing was was launched on a poor assessment of why Ukraine would fight and, and how it would fight. When things went wrong, as they did from day one of the Russian military operation, they were never really able to recover their position. So things carried on going wrong. Um, and they still have yet to go right for Russia. Why was General, I'm sorry, what explains the fraught relations between uh, NATO head Wesley, General Wesley Clark and his um, superiors in the Pentagon? And how, if at all, did that affect uh, policy and strategy operations during the Kosovo War? Well, I mean, part of the problem lies with the fact um, of the... Uh, position of the Supreme Allied Commander Europe, uh, which is obviously a position first uh, established by General Eisenhower, uh, and the and the uh, it's a dual role. On the one hand, you're the leader of uh, American uh, forces in Europe, American army in Europe, and uh, sector answerable directly to the Pentagon. On the other hand, you, you're NATO's senior general in that role. You, you have to work with the NATO Secretary General and all the other members of the alliance. And uh, uh, Clark uh, was far more committed to a very sort of forward policy, uh, an active policy in Kosovo, than his superiors in the Pentagon, who were worried that this was uh, um something that the United States shouldn't really be doing, uh, and it really had to do it. 
it should be very much sort of limited liability. Whereas Clark's view was that once you were in there, you had to make sure you won. And that, if necessary, and the big arguments on that, uh, as they developed, was how much you deployed the threat to use land forces rather than just rely on air forces. Um, and on that, uh, Clark was probably closer to the UK Prime Minister Tony Blair than he was to um, President Clinton in the US. So there were, there were inherent tensions, and that part of this is again comes down to personalities. Um, whereas Clark is quite a, a cerebral general, um, very well educated. Uh, perfectly brave. I mean, he he he'd, uh, he'd had his time in Vietnam, um, but but was not seen um, uh, in, in in the by the Joint Chiefs as being uh, as one of them. He was seen as uh, as being a bit arrogant and distant. So so the personality factors contributed again to to policy differences. But most of these times when you see that there's, there's an underlying question of strategy involved and it's not it's not just the fact that these guys don't get on but the command arrangements were incredibly complicated um, and this certainly didn't help why was general clark at loggerheads with general sir michael jackson oh well that's a particular incident the, the, the um when the um when Milosevic, the, the Serb leader, eventually capitulated for a variety of reasons, a peacekeeping force was supposed to go in, which General Jackson had been preparing for NATO, it was sitting in um, Macedonia. And um, uh, the Russians were, who, who, who had support, I mean, we're not the support of, of Milosevic, although in the end they, they'd help to put the pressure on him, thought that they could reassert their position in authority by taking Pristina Airport uh, first, um, uh, and in the sense using that to potentially divide um, uh, Kosovo, uh, maybe lead to a partition. Uh, and, and Clark correctly, I think, saw that's what the Russians were up to. Um, but Clark, uh, um, Jackson believed that uh, he could handle it without having to be very desperately confrontational with the Russians, which indeed you know, he, he was able to do. Um, but he was mainly helped by the fact that uh, Clark had encouraged the other NATO countries not to let Russian aircraft fly over their territories, bringing in troops, uh, troops to Pristina Airport. So actually, the the, um, the 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 Russian units that went there were were rather stranded. That's how the the crisis was defused. But it, it was, I think again, tired people working at different time zones, trying to sort out what was going on, uh, ended up shouting at each other quite a lot, uh, with Jackson famously saying he wasn't going to start World War Three. 
for, for Clark. And Jackson also used his dual appointment, both as a, a British general and as a NATO general, to um, to give himself more latitude. Who do you assign major responsibility for the failure to capture and or kill Bin Laden in the mountains of Tora Bora in uh, 2001? Um, well, I mean, Bin Laden uh, prepared Tora Bora as a sort of redoubt, as a, as a place to escape to. And um, uh, uh, when, it, when it was clear that the, the Taliban were going to lose and that coalition forces were and the, and the Northern Alliance was sweeping in, uh, he moved there. The basic problem was was that um, in the defeat of the Taliban, the Americans had managed to work very closely with Afghans who had their own agenda, their own reasons for defeating the Taliban, not least to um, uh, provide the government of the country. Whereas in Tora Bora, the, the, there wasn't the same sort of quality of Afghan alliance, so called Eastern Alliance was very cobbled together. Um, lots of internal divisions. They're not very related to what the Americans were were trying to do. And uh, so, so when it was apparent that the Bin Laden was there, um, they were not particularly keen at taking great risks themselves. Yet um, the American... Um, the American military weren't also prepared to take great risks. And you have a very particular issue arising where General Franks, the American uh, central commander, um, was pretty wary about uh, General Mattis and his Marines, uh, who, who was the only force in a position to get in numbers to Tora Bora, where they might be able to cut him off um, and stop him getting to Pakistan, which is where eventually he ended up. So I think you you just had an operation that was uh, led in a rather erratic way with the CIA taking a lot of the early initiative, calling in airstrikes, which alerted um, Bin Laden and his followers to the risk, but didn't actually take them out. Um, and it, you know the whole thing ended up with with Bin Laden um, escaping, and uh, I mean, lots of his uh, Al Qaeda people were killed, but but, but not uh, not Bin Laden. That, that came much later. What explains the failures of the British occupation of Basra in the Iraq War? Well, there are a number of explanations for the failure in Basra. I think the um, the basic problem was that the British Army were never really committed to uh, to staying for long in Iraq after the 2003 war. They wanted to be part of the big operation to show that they could play a role. Um, they performed perfectly effectively in 2003. Um, but then found themselves in occupying power and found themselves in charge of the area around Basra. And I think then they were a bit complacent because it's largely a Shia area and they thought it would be 
more sympathetic to the British. But what they did was, was allow the um, extremist militias to take over, including taking over the police force, effectively. Um, and so their own position became quite vulnerable. They didn't have the numbers or the strength or the resources to make a big impact. So they, in the way, just got stranded in the air. With Adam Al Shadow, the um, uh, Lucia leader turned on them or wanted to to, to show them who's boss. Um, they didn't have much of a response and ended up having to do a deal with, with the militia in order to um, extract their forces from their most vulnerable positions. So it's basically they lost over time, they lost their ability to impose their presence and lost control um, and um, conceded it to, uh, to militias. It wasn't really until the Iraqi government was prepared to take them on um, that the situation improved. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, Sir Lawrence, what would it be? Um, that all military operations have to be understood in the political context. However, I'm denying for a second the importance of professionalism in the military, the, the, uh, the technologies and the logistics and all those things which really do make a difference. In the end, you need to be able to work with the government um, to have re realistic political objectives uh, and to know strategically when the objectives may have to be changed because the circumstances have changed uh, or to have an honest appreciation of what has to be done to meet them. So it, it, it really is about the, the importance of understanding the, the political context of, of military operations. On that observation, I would like to thank you very much, Sir Lawrence, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. You've been listening to a podcast on the New Books Network, New Books in History. Thank you again, Sir Lawrence, very much. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye.